Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hunk, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at the firm. Emerging markets have come back into the spotlight in recent weeks. The reflation trade narrative going into 2021 drew a lot of attention to the space, as investors positioned their portfolios to take advantage of a potential global recovery after COVID-19. To discuss some of the current major themes in emerging markets, this week's guest is Matthew Ryan. Matt has more than 22 years experience as a portfolio manager at MFS Investment Management. He is part of the portfolio management teams for MFS's emerging market debt, strategic income, and high yield bond strategies. Prior to joining MFS, he worked as an economist at the IMF and the US Department of the Treasury. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Matt. It's always a pleasure to hear your thoughts. Now, emerging markets were hit by a perfect storm last year. There was capital flight as well as disappearance of cash flows for for a lot of businesses, for exporters. The default rates reached all-time highs, although the two largest defaults were were happening anyway. Argentina and and, and Lebanon uh, are are not COVID-related credit events. But the market has rebounded rapidly and emerging market bonds delivered strong returns. Now, you know, this performance is partly due to movement in U.S. treasuries and and partly because spreads didn't stay wide for very long. Would that be a fair way of characterizing developments? In in other words, was performance largely a function of broader developments in U.S. fixed income markets? Yeah, to some extent. And, And just to kind of reiterate, what you just mentioned, we we experienced last year, I think the most severe, abrupt, but also shortest recession in the post-war period. That also included the largest outflows from emerging market debt funds in, in the month of March. I think it was around $30 billion. And that's in addition to the outflows that we saw from uh, the asset classes, more tourist money, crossover accounts uh, exited during that very panicky period. And then that was followed by the most massive fiscal and monetary stimulus I think we've ever seen, where the Fed essentially dusted off the playbook from the global financial crisis and then added to it with facilities that included direct purchases of uh, investment-grade bonds, and some fallen angels, uh, both in the secondary and primary markets. So, you know, that those Fed programs directly affected USIG and high yield through the fallen angels, and indirectly high yield as well. So you had the situation of this global bifurcation of markets, where in the U.S. the rebound occurred first, and first with IG and then uh, followed by U.S. high yield, and then emerging markets after that. And then within emerging markets, you had investment-grade rebounding, and then the more beaten-up high-yield parts of the market rebounding in May and June as investors started rotating back into EM. So against this massive abrupt recession, we saw this massive stimulus and, you know, the popular way of describing it was was this wall of liquidity meeting this wall of worry and the wall of liquidity won um, in the end and I, I think it won because it it really addressed two key investor concerns um, and, and motivations one it it 
helped address uh, the concerns about uh, liquidity and whether debtors could pay and service their debt, which they could as, as markets reopened and they could they could issue debt. And then in addition, you had you know a number of multilateral programs too, which helped. But in, in addition to that, it also pushed investors into riskier markets, all these, uh, these Fed and ECB programs, as the IG markets, the investment grade markets, and the higher yielding markets saw spreads compress. Investors were then pushed into to EM, uh, particularly as they felt more comfortable doing so. So, you know, it was a combination of factors. And as you, you know, point out, the low interest rates in the uh, in the developed markets um, were a manifestation of these factors that contributed to the better performance uh, ultimately in emerging markets. Emerging markets, of course, themselves undertook a lot of policy measures during the crisis, and and some of it unprecedented. Right, I can't think of many instances where you had capital flight and, and emerging markets where we're actually cutting rates. So there were extraordinary both fiscal and monetary measures that were undertaken. But as a result of that, debt ratios have risen substantially. So as we look towards a normalization of global economic activity, how much of a concern should, should this be? I mean, in, in a way, what I'm asking, are current spreads adequately reflecting the, you know, significantly hard debt burdens in some countries. And really, you know, we can think of some country examples. Brazil is one country that comes to mind. I often wonder about what, what Turkey's up to. It's a, it's a great question. It's interesting because the, the positive spin, I think, would be that EM debt levels, public debt levels, have risen, but they're still only about half of where developed market debt levels are. So, you know, it's interesting. Emerging market government debt rose about nine or ten percent last year, on a whole. So, at fifty-nine percent of GDP, that puts it at an all-time high. But again, it's about half of where developed market public debt levels are. You know, Japan. U.S., Europe, for example. They're um, not all borrowing in their currencies, right? Own currency. Well, that's 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 exactly right. Although what's what's also interesting about emerging markets is is that most government and private debt is is domestic. Most about eighty-seven, high eighty percent is is domestic uh, in in terms of government debt, and then private debt is about ninety-four percent domestic and emerging market countries. So external debt has not has not been a huge concern um, in the asset class. In fact, I think only about public debt, it only uh, amounts to about 9% of GDP out of that, that broader debt figure. And if you look at total uh, external debt as a share of GDP, it's about 32%. So that's total, that's private and, and, and public. So so the problem, though, is that um, there's there's a fair amount of dispersion in the asset class, sure. and you do have a number of countries where they have very high debt levels, and a good share of that debt is external, and that's uh, because they don't have the the domestic savings or the domestic financial markets to intermeet mediate savings, and so they rely more on, on uh, foreign investors. So if you look at Angola, 
public external debt there is about 90% of GDP, and that represents about 70% of their total debt. Their total debt's around 125, 130% of GDP. Mongolia, similar sort of, you know, very high share of external debt. Sri Lanka, which has got its debt to GDP's high 90s uh, percent of GDP, about half of that is external. And then as you point out, there are also countries like Brazil where there's been a big increase in debt and debt there is in the uh, mid 90 percent of GDP range. Now, in the case of Brazil, most of that is domestic debt. Uh, South Africa has seen an increase in its debt, although its, its debt levels are about 81 percent, so not quite as alarming um, as some of these other countries, but the increase was quite large last year. So against debt levels for the broader asset class that, that have increased rather significantly, but are at levels that, that look manageable, we do have a number of countries where those de those debt levels are a, a serious concern, and Brazil is one. And I think South Africa is another one. And, and where this is reflected, it's partly in some of their external spreads, but where I see it more reflected is in their their local rate curves, which are relatively steep, where the real rates are, particularly at the long end, are, are relatively high. You know, and, and in the case of Brazil, this is an ongoing concern, I think, that, that markets have which is that uh, unless there's a, a fairly credible plan to consolidate their fiscal deficits and to you know, achieve debt sus sustainability, you know, there's, there's a risk that you get into this trap of higher deficits, higher risk premiums, lower growth, and it's a bit of a, you know, it becomes a bit of a, a vicious spiral of higher debt levels and lower growth, and that just feeds on itself. And it's something that we, you know, began to see under Dilma. The, the good news, I think, in Brazil is that the Congress uh, seems to understand it, which has always been the problem. I worry more about the president. We've got a good finance minister in Paulo Guedes, but the, the president is a bit of a populist, and it's, it's not entirely clear how committed he is to to the sort of fiscal adjustment in the country that's needed, which means, you know, adhering to the spending caps and pushing for the sorts of reforms in Brazil that are necessary for, for longer-term fiscal sustainability. But for the asset class as a whole, you know, just, just getting back to these, you know, some of these broader numbers, what's very interesting is going into the crisis, the big increase in debt that we had seen from the global financial crisis, uh, uh, up until uh, the beginning of last year, most of that increase in overall debt in emerging markets was in the private sector. Most of that debt was in China, was Chinese corporate borrowing, and most of it was domestic uh, currency denominated. It was local currency debt. It wasn't external debt. Let's turn to um, FX for a minute. So we've seen relatively weak emerging market currencies recently, which isn't surprising given the low interest rate environments in many of these countries. And th this obviously has implications for whether you prefer local or hard currency debt. Um, what are your thoughts on the trade-off at the moment? It's a good question, and it, and it ties into Osama's point about countries 
running historically unique countercyclical policies, typically during periods of global financial turmoil, market turmoil, um, emerging market countries are are forced to tighten policies, um, and that, that's for a number of reasons. Um, chief among them that uh, their currencies depreciate, that causes inflationary pressures to rise, but also it it it, uh, it raises financial stability concerns because of the mismatched balance sheets that in the past have existed in many of these economies. And because of those mismatches, a, a currency depreciation can can raise a specter of bankruptcies and, and uh, problems in the banking system. This time around, countries, central banks in emerging markets were willing to um, accommodate in, in terms of policies because I think of two factors. One, inflationary pressures globally and in emerging markets were, were very subdued. And secondly, they didn't have the same financial stability concerns that we've seen in the past. So as a result, you know, they ran looser policies and the depreciation that, that went with those policies wasn't as much of a concern. Um, so for us, this was a headwind um, because, you know, for, for investing in, in local currencies, because despite the fact that they did, uh, they did weaken up, um, the looser monetary uh, policies run by EM central banks um, uh, were a headwind to investing in currencies because even though the currencies cheapened up, unlike in the past when currencies cheapened up and central banks tightened, um, in this case we were left with uh, more attractive currency valuations but, um, but low carry. Um, and the prospect for um, you know, further depreciation uh, in, in many countries, policy easing was still uh, was still ongoing. Having said all that, in in the fourth quarter, uh, we started to see I think the uh, global uh, financial and macro factors start to coalesce that were more favorable towards towards uh, EM currency positions. And, you know, part of this was the vaccine optimism and the, uh, and the prospect for uh, increased um, uh, broad-based global recovery, global growth. Um, you still had continued uh, very accommodative ECB and, and, and Federal Reserve policies, both in terms of rates, but also um, QE and other facilities. After the Biden victory, we also had the prospect of uh, larger U.S. fiscal stimulus, uh, and with that, the prospect for, for higher global growth, because there's, there's certainly going to be spillover effects from that stimulus. You know, there was a bit of a, of a reflation trade environment, which is always, always in the past, has been favorable for EM currencies. So, this was an environment where we were comfortable adding uh, to to EM currencies because, in our view, they were they were cheaper than uh, spreads, um, external spreads, uh, dollar and and euro denominated spreads, and we thought that this 
kind of mini reflation trade, you know, with higher commodity prices, higher growth, uh, which is typically correlated with, with good currency performance. All of this suggested a, a good opportunity. Um, so we, we increased our currency exposure pretty substantially uh, in the fourth quarter last year uh, to take advantage of this. And, and part of it also was motivated by the fact that where external spreads, uh, hard currency spreads, were uh, seemingly attracting most interest were in high yield single B names. And we, we thought that a number of these credits were still, you know, face some uh, you know, a number of challenges um, along the lines of what we were just discussing um, regarding debt uh, and, and high fiscal deficits. Um, so for us, the currencies presented, you know, better risk reward opportunities since, you know, in a number of these cases, you know, these are currencies in countries uh, with better overall fundamentals, but with, you know, relatively cheap valuations. So I think for currencies generally, I think we're still in this, uh, we're still in an environment where there's a, a structural case to be made for having currencies in the portfolio now, but um, I still view them as a, a bit more tactical, and that's simply because they they lack the carry um, and that they've had in the past um, in, in these sorts of uh, more volatile environments, um, but at the same time, they still, on a relative value basis, when you look at just valuations, they still appear cheaper. So there, there's both pros and cons, and it, for for us, what it means is that you know we just we want to be very selective. Um, should should we know. should we be expecting that this is going to be the the status quo for some time? In a way, if you think, you know, if you go back before COVID, in a country like Brazil, for example, but it wasn't the only one uh, where inflation was surprising on the downside consistently, and so interest rates were coming down anyway to to pretty unprecedented levels, and then you had COVID, and I'm just wondering if if you know, the, the low interest rate environment has now migrated from developed markets to emerging markets, and we should really be expecting a much lower carry asset class in the future for, for quite some time. Would, would that be uh, a fair characterization? It could be. It could be. And, you know, it's important to look at, you know, when we talk about carry and emerging market currencies, we obviously want to take into account the fact that, um, you know, it's all relative to, to U.S. and and, uh, and European rates. Um, I think uh, where there are significant concerns, though, about um, debt levels, while we might see central banks anchoring the front ends of some of those curves, there are we are going to continue to see. A steeper yield curve in those countries right. Right. Um, and we're certainly seeing that in South Africa we're seeing that in Brazil and then there's always a the risk of fiscal dominance um, then also intruding and and leading central banks to feel that uh, they can't remain as accommodative maybe as they were and that uh, in, in any event uh, in those sorts of situations, the central bank, to some extent, loses some control 
over the rate environment. So that's all by way of saying that um, I, I don't think in some of these emerging market countries we're, we're in this uh, nirvana that some people uh, see as, as a justification for things like modern monetary theory. Um, and, and that's simply because, you know, the markets um, won't let that happen. So you mentioned um, the reflation trade earlier and in commodities in particular. So we've obviously seen a rally in copper, oil, etc. to name a few. Um, these prices are, are critical to many emerging markets. How sustainable do you think this recovery is? Um, do you think it's driven by demand or is it perhaps supply issues? You know, I think it's both and I, I don't pretend to be an expert, but um, I, I, I think I'm more constructive on some of these industrial metals like copper uh, than I am on oil. You know, oil right now is, I think, being supported by a number of factors which could turn out to be rather transient. And it, you know, importantly, it, it relies on OPEC plus, this OPEC plus agreement and, you know, continued um, agreement of, uh, among those producers to restrain supply. Um, it, it also assumes, I think, uh, some of the more bullish forecasts that uh, there'll be more discipline among U.S. Uh, shale producers. That, ha that Those assumptions haven't always been borne out, so, so that remains. But I do think, you know, we are going to see, particularly as vaccinations increase and mobility increases, we will see certainly higher demand um, reflected in more car travel as well as, you know, uh, air, air travel generally. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to expect in the case of oil, demand, demand to rise with uh, the rise in global growth and increased mobility, um, increased travel. And I think the key question will be, you know, in the near term, you know, what happens, uh, what happens to supply where, you know, there's a fair amount of supply that's been taken off the market, but presumably could come back on relatively quickly. Longer term, you know, obviously in the case of oil, things like the Biden administration's emphasis on, on green energy is a serious headwind to oil. And I, and I you know, I, I think I read, for example, that and this is, I think, may or may not have been influenced by by the new U.S. administration. But GM is anticipating its car fleet will be, a, you know, entirely electric by 2035. Probably aspirational more than a reality, but anyways, it's indicative of, you know, the pace of change that's, that's occurring, and and you know that doesn't bode uh, terribly well longer term for for oil. And I think the impact on, on the near term could be that oil exporters feel the need to basically exploit this asset they have sooner rather than later if they if looking down the road um, at a demand picture that's going to not be as favorable uh, influences their, their forecast years out. And, and that obviously would but, would but would that would that mean greater cooperation or would we see something like the spat that we saw between Russia and and Saudi Arabia which you know turned WTI negative one day right uh, uh, I mean I, I, I'm wondering 
Oil is super important for the budgets of both countries and also other countries in the Middle East, right? I mean, this is why we've seen a big growth in, in debt issues by these uh, economies. So would that lead to more likelihood for cooperation or, or more competition? It's a it's a great question, and I, I don't know. I mean, it was it was a bit shocking what happened in uh, in March of last year, right? Where you had a an already severe decline in demand for for oil, compounded then by the supply uh, increase when when the Saudis, angry with the Russians, uh, decided to protect market share and increase output and cast aside the 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 agreement. So I, I don't know for sure. I, kn- I know that there's, you know, and, and this isn't any particular insight, there's a, a fairly understandable reluctance to reduce output among some of the bigger producers, whether it's the Saudis or others, only to see market share being given up to U.S. shale producers. And, you know, from time to time, there's been discussions of, you know, cooperation by some of these producers. But, you know, that runs into regulatory issues. You know, if oil producers in the U.S. are getting together to um, agree to some sort of... It's also true that that the technology is making that ceiling that shale put on oil prices lower and lower, right? Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, last year was really a perfect storm for oil producers because, you know, you had these demand and supply factors, which at one point, as you pointed out, sent oil um, in the futures markets below zero. But you also had consumers which couldn't take advantage of these low oil prices because of the virus-related restrictions on travel. Right. So it was, it was, a it was, it was, you know, not, not a good situation. One thing I will say though, when you look at other commodities and, and we can just use copper as an example is this green energy focus um, and the infrastructure focus of the Biden administration is positive for example, for copper. Um, it'll, it'll increase demand for, you know, what is uh, 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 important input into building out uh, transmission lines and, and other aspects of a, uh, of a build out in uh, the green energy infrastructure. So I think, you know, both near term and longer term, I think the prospects for at least as I see them, and I don't pretend to, to, to be an expert here, but for the industrial metals looks looks more encouraging than it does for oil. You know, the other thing for something like copper is it takes about, you know, three to five years for these copper, large copper projects to come online. So, um, you know, that's another reason why I think people are fairly constructive. The, the supply elasticity is lower than in oil, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So with the um, with the new administration in place in the U.S., uh, we should expect some changes to certain policies that have implications for emerging markets, of course. Um, the obvious one being the U.S.-China relationship, which has been well documented. Um, but the relationship with other North American partners is also critical, Mexico in particular. How are you thinking about these developments and how relevant are they to emerging market debt investors? I think they're hugely important um, and it's I think indirectly and directly, and maybe we'll start with some of the direct ones. I, I, I think 
there are specific countries which will which will welcome a Biden administration, um, and there are other countries which um, I think will be forced to either adjust um, to a less uh, uh, um, accommodating uh, U.S. president, or or they'll 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 have a rocky relationship. I think broadly speaking not just emerging markets but i think developed markets generally will will do better and are likely to welcome um, a biden administration if for no other reason then things will be calmer um, the um, you know the, the trump foreign policy i think both reflected how he campaigned and then governed and it was an agenda that was nationalistic protectionist and unilateralist um, and it was also, I think, in, for Trump, I think both foreign policy and trade policy was was a, a means to serve his domestic political objectives. So, you know, this was reflected in a, a you know, as you mentioned, uh, Paul, a, a confrontational approach towards China across a range of issues, tech, trade, Taiwan, um, and then also, you know, certainly in the Gulf, a very confrontational approach towards Iran. Um, that included exiting the, the nuclear treaty, more sanctions, as well as uh, some provocative um, assassinations. And I think, you know, the, the common denominator in these policies, and, and this is also true in, in policies towards Mexico over trade and in, in the investment relationship under NAFTA, was the, at times, impulsiveness and sometimes recklessness of the, the Trump White House. So. I think, you know, just the fact that you've now got an administration that um, has, I think, more professionals, uh, lots of experience in, in national security, foreign policy, a more traditional approach to dealing with these issues, um, is, is going to contribute to a much less volatile um, tenor and environment. And, and that volatility was important. I mean, any number of estimates as to how much Trump undermined the impact of his tax cuts by his protectionist trade policies and the harm that did to investment plans um, uh, and, and how much it, it uh, how much unease it created in, in markets generally. Um, so, you know, under Biden, I think we'll still have an adversarial rather confrontational relationship with China. But I think Biden is also going to look for areas where cooperation might be possible. And he's, you know, he's identified climate change and the pandemic. You know, and I think under a Biden foreign policy, generally, there'll be more multilateralism, more consultation with allies, um, less protectionism, certainly less impulsiveness, um, and generally less uncertainty. Um, and I'd, I'd also say that under Biden, um, you know, his key policy objectives appear to be domestic. You know, his priorities are, you know, as he puts it, I think, to heal the country. And more specifically, you know, his, his first priority is addressing the pandemic, um, including the delivery of vaccines. And then I think he also wants to address both near-term near and medium-term economic challenges in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, these domestic objectives can have 
you know, important implications and benefits for emerging market countries. But I think the broader point is I don't think he's going to be looking uh, to pick fights with with China or Russia. But at the same time, you know, as I think we all have seen, there's there's a bilateral consensus uh, in the U.S. Congress towards a tougher approach to China, and the emphasis um, is different. Democrats are going to emphasize some of the human rights uh, issues, both in Hong Kong and among the the Uyghurs uh, in China, than, than certainly Trump did. You know, there's there is some sentiment among Democrats that this is one area, maybe the only area of uh, of Trump's foreign policy agenda that um, you know there was some some general uh, support for, which was getting tougher with China on variety of trade and and, uh, and also technology issues. I think Russia, you know, there's going to be a tougher approach towards Russia by this administration. And again, I don't I don't see Biden going out of his way, you know, impose sanctions on Russia or to con- confront Russia. But there's a whole list of areas where Russia's a- actions are likely to prompt a, a stronger U.S. response. Um, and you know, whether it's a, a, something having to do with Navalny. Um, which appears to be a, a much more important issue to Europeans than it does to the U.S., um, but it could also include, you know, activities in Belarus, Belarus, excuse me. Um, you know, there's the hacking issue, which uh, is going to continue to to receive a lot of attention here, and you know, certainly there's a lot of sensitivity to that. Um, and then, you know, outside of that, though, I, I think you know, countries. You know, I think in Latin America, you know, Mexico, I think, uh, you know, will benefit from this administration. Um, although AMLO has, has done a few things which, you know, haven't helped him, uh, have, haven't endeared him, I don't think, to the Biden administration. Um, you know, and I, I think a particularly troubling action was the exoneration of this uh, uh, former Mexican uh, uh, military officer uh, who was arrested in the U.S. on drug charges and then uh, sent back to Mexico and then exonerated, um, which raises all sorts of, I think, concerns, justifiable concerns about the state of governance in Mexico. Um, but uh, but Mexico will benefit, I think, from a, a you know, a stronger U.S. recovery, uh, the spillover effects um, into the Mexican economy will be significant. I think a, a relationship that's uh, certainly much less volatile, um, you know, will be benefit to Me- beneficial to Mexico. Um, so, you know, I, I think overall we're likely to see, again, less impulsiveness, less, uh, uh, less protectionism. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I hear you on the reliance on multilateralism. From the sound of, of the Buy American, <laughs> you know, initiative, the, the way Biden put it, and the fact that he has said that he will not roll back the tariffs against China, and several other signals, how much really, how much less protectionism should we can we really expect? I mean, it would seem to me that there is a constituent, there isn't really uh, a constituency for 
a big constituency for free trade right now. There are interests on both both sides of the aisle that that somehow favor some protectionism. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think we'll see less use of protectionism as a less weaponization of trade, maybe. Fair enough. Yes. Um, but you're right. I, I don't see the the Democrats or certainly Biden initiating embarking on new free trade agreements. Yeah. And you know the TPP that was you know, something that the the Obama administration had promoted was was used against Clinton in the uh, 2016 election. Now I, I happen to still think it was it made sense uh, on a number of levels. Uh, geostrategically, it made sense for the U.S. to be supportive of um, establishing a free trade area uh, with 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 Asia, but uh, but domestically, it was um, it was toxic, and Trump certainly demagogued the issue successfully. And I think the Democrats have, have learned a lesson there. And I think more broadly, the, the Democrats have, have realized that they've got this reputation of, of being a party now of kind of cosmopolitan elites and identity politics. And part of that has been their embrace of free trade, which took them further away from, you know, the being the champion of uh, the working class and and the blue collar voters, uh, which gravitated towards Trump in 2016. So I think Biden, you know, being this kid from Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, is going to play up, you know, his this this shift towards policies which are perceived as being more supportive of of the working class and that includes this buy america now it's important to remember that on this buy america stuff the u.s government i think there was a recent study only produces only purchases only about three percent of goods procured by the u.s government are are produced outside of the u.s now that actually seems quite low to me but i don't think I, i think when biden talks about you know, buy America in terms of government procurement. I, I think it's more of a uh, of a slogan without a lot of uh, there won't be a lot of meaningful changes in in actual uh, U.S. government purchases. But I, I I think you raise a good point now. Now, I, but I will say too, I think Biden, even though he's not going to pursue, I think trade openings um, because I, I don't think politically that's where he wants to to spend any political capital and frankly i don't think there's um any sentiment on capitol hill among democrats to to do that i also think though he'll be he is going to be more respective respectful of uh international institutions including the wto which i think under the trump administration has lacked um a an enforcement uh, capability because um, of the lack of appointments uh, to, to crucial groups in that body. So I think, notwithstanding, you know, uh, as you say, an administration that is going to maintain some of these these trade restrictions that are propped up, particularly as it as it pertains to China. I think we will see um, some of these international institutions, which. Trump not just um, didn't have any respect for, but actively worked against um, 
and this is certainly true in the case of the WTO, but it's it's true across the board. It was true in the case of NATO. It was true in the case of um, uh, World Bank and the IMF. I, I think we will see an administration that um, you know seeks to be more engaged, um, and we so we've seen a a bit of that already. I mean, you know, the administration has rejoined the WHO. You know, I think the hope is is that it it plays a a constructive and active role in these organizations. Indeed, one one would hope that more more uh, more cooperation at the international level, at least in some some crisis situations, would be would be beneficial to all. Thank you very much, Matt, for for taking the time to to talk to us. It's, it's always a pleasure and to to hear your thoughts. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.